Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This week on the Chicago Bears Review. It's been a longer offseason than usual in the Pacific Northwest. But since the Seahawks missed the playoffs for the first time since 2011, their sole focus is to get back to the postseason in 2018. Can the Seahawks get back to January football, or have they taken a step back? Spike Friedman from Locked On Seahawks joins us for this NFC West preview episode of the Chicago Bears Review. Episode number nine of 14 opponent preview episodes. We're on the downhill slope. We got one more team left in the NFC West, and we move on to the NFC North, and then finally to our beloved Chicago Bears. What's going on, everybody? Larity back part three of our NFC West preview featuring the Seattle Seahawks this time around. Going to be talking to Spike Friedman from the Locked On Seahawks podcast here in just a few minutes and um, had a really good conversation with Spike. Talked to him last night on Monday. Um, Talked a lot about the future of, of the team and what a crazy year 2017 was for them. Uh, considering that, uh, and you'll hear Spike say that they kind of pushed their chips all to the middle of the table, making moves that would suggest they were in a win-now kind of attitude uh, in 2017, uh, you know, trading for uh, Dwayne Brown and, and other various moves that they that they talked that he talked about, but uh, injuries and things like that is really what ended up saddling the uh, Seahawks missing the postseason for the first time since 2011, so... Uh, you know, we'll talk about that and uh, get his thoughts on draft night. Uh, with uh, with so many other needs that the team had, they went with a running back that that had everyone. I mean, I I was watching uh, I think ESPN or NFL Network for the for the draft at that point, and no one could really wrap their head around why the Seahawks took a running back at that point when that's not the biggest need on the team. So uh, we get his thoughts on that and how he feels about it now versus how he felt out on draft night. Uh, so on and so forth. So, But before we get to our talk with Spike, we have our little news and notes section, and it's all about rankings. Um, starting off with the... let's First, the, the, there are three things I want to talk about. The first one is disappointing, and then a, a also typical, I guess you could say. And the other two are somewhat... Uh, they're positive, I could say that for sure. Uh, number one, the NFL Network completed its annual top 100 players of uh, series, and the Bears were absent on the list. Not one Bear made the top 100 uh, of 2017, which, granted, we were 5-11. and 11. We didn't have a good football team, but um, how does Jordan Howard not make the list? How did Akeem Hicks 
not make the, I mean, even if they were in the eighties or nineties, you know, they, they, neither one of them made the list. And I'm, I'm more upset that Jordan Howard didn't make the list because the guy managed to rush for over 1100 yards in a season where every defense that we faced was after him. You know, we were playing short, short yardage defense. They were loading up the box. He was facing eight, nine guys. Every single time he tried to run the ball, still managed to run for 1,100 yards, which no one has ever done in the history of the Bears' storied franchise. Over 1,100 yards the first two years of their career, even over 1,000, I think, is actually the, the actual stat. But, um, you know, even though Jordan Howard was running into a brick wall of humanity for the entire year in 2017, he still managed to rush for 1,100 yards. He was still a load to take down. And, and just imagine how many yards he could have had if we had any kind of semblance of a passing game and he didn't have to face those loaded up boxes, you know, play in and play out uh, and everything else. So um, the fact that he didn't make it is, you know, staggering uh, to me. I, I still can't believe that didn't happen. And, and Akeem Hicks, you know, can you name a better 3-4 defensive end, uh, uh, you know, in football right now or a more, sta- you know, uh, effective one, I mean, the guy's a monster, and he couldn't even crack the 90s or something. It's, that's ridiculous. Just just bananas that neither one of those made it, but especially Howard. I mean, I can I can see, you know, Akeem Hicks, but uh, honestly, it, it's, it's, it's pathetic to me that the Bears got no love on that list and... Uh, or anything like that. I mean, they're there. And I've seen a few articles along the way, you know, players Jordan Howard could have replaced on, you know, in this, you know, 10 that were in there. Somehow, somehow, Jimmy Garoppolo starting five games last year made made the list. He made the list at 90. You know, you tell me that Jimmy Garoppolo is a better player and, and had a better 2017 than, than uh, Jordan Howard did. That's ridiculous. Just ridiculous. And that's just one example. Um, I just, uh, you know, I'm not surprised and yet I am very surprised because this is something that's, um, you know, uh, voted on by the players themselves. So it's like, it's not even really, you can't even really blame the NFL network. You got to blame the players, man. It's like, how does none of like, there's no respect league wide for Jordan Howard. I hope Jordan, uh, you know, is hearing this. I mean, I doubt that he is, but you know, just in case. The league doesn't respect you. And I'm not talking about, you know, Goodell in, in the offices in New York. I'm talking about the guys that you face on the field. None of them think that you're one of the top 100 players in the league, or at least nobody outside of your locker room does. So uh, just remember that, you know, especially on September the 9th when we're in Lambeau for week one. I want you to run all over the Packers. I want 250 out of you in that game just to stick it to them for picking us to kick off their 100 season of football. Uh, on national TV. I really want them to suffer that first night uh, of the season. So, but yeah, so that's the, the negative ranking. Uh, the next two are actually pretty cool. Um, especially when you, when you're looking at, uh, you know, the, the, the company that they're keeping in these certain, uh, you know, uh, lists. The first one is I read an article, I believe I read it last week or something, uh, ranking the supporting cast for each quarterback in the NFL. Now, I totally expect it just because, like I mentioned a, a moment ago, the Bears don't get any kind of love in this kind of situation. And I know that people think highly of what the Bears did in the offseason, but it's all based on what could be, what potential is, uh, and so on. So I totally expected to find the Bears somewhere in the mid to low 20s. Uh, on this list for supporting cast is like, yep, the potential for greatness is there, but 
they're still the Bears, so we'll put them in the 20s. That did not happen. The exact opposite happened. We have, according to this list, and I forgot where I saw it, um, we have the best supporting cast in our division. We're ranked ahead of Green Bay. Uh, Where's it at? Green Bay was 17. Detroit was 16. Or actually, we have the second best in our division. My mistake. That's my fault. Um, I'm thinking about the next list. But um, we're, we're number two behind Minnesota. But we're 11 overall in the league. So we're in the top half, near just, just outside the top 10. So the number 11 supporting cast, talking about Allen Robinson, Taylor Gabriel, uh, Trey Burden, Adam Shaheen, uh, Cohen, and Howard. That had to be a big boost as far as uh, pushing that group up there. Uh, but all of those, uh, you know, the tight ends and, and the wide receivers that we acquired, along with, uh, you know, that tandem that we have in the backfield, is what's you know if like all it, Trubisky just has to be decent this year and the Bears are going to have an awesome offense you know that's basically with that supporting cast that's basically what they're saying but at 11 we're only behind Minnesota who's in the top 10 at number seven and uh we're ahead of uh Green Bay somehow has the worst supporting cast which I think is <laughs> hilarious but Detroit at 16 Green Bay at 17 on supporting cast and um I think that says a lot about Aaron Rodgers, actually, that according to this list, whoever wrote it up, and I I, I saw the, the, the summary on like 24-7 sports. It was summarizing that article, so I, I don't remember where it came from. But um, it says that, that, you know, Green Bay's got the worst supporting cast, but they have Aaron Rodgers, so, you know, he's the one that's making that supporting cast better by throwing them the football and putting in the right place, so on and so forth. But... Uh, so the Bears have the second best supporting cast in the in the in the division, number eleven overall in the league, which I think I think that's awesome. That's not nowhere near where I thought we'd find them uh, on that list. And then finally, it's this might sound low uh, to Bear fans because of course we are the best fan base in pro football. But according to a study done by Emory University. Uh, it's actually a pretty hallowed university, especially as far as academics are concerned. The Bears have the number six fan base overall in in all of the and in, in in all of the NFL, behind the Cowboys at one, the Patriots two, Eagles three, Giants four, Steelers five. That's some pretty good company to be surrounded by. Uh, the Packers were nine, the Lions at twenty, and the Vikings at twenty-four. Now they were basing this on three criteria they call it fan equity which is how much fans spend on their team either at the ticket office or on memorabilia okay take a look around this room you see plenty of bear stuff uh social equity how passionate fans are in following their teams on social media across all channels and then road equity how well teams draw on the road now this is actually a number that i thought that this list was low on because it has the bears at number 12 on road equity and i think that's just bananas i mean who travels except maybe the steelers i noticeably i know that people travel well for pittsburgh but who travels better than the bears you know i mean there are times i mean we went to dallas and overtook the jerry dome you guys remember that that monday night game we were more prevalent. I mean, remember that game in 2014 when Tressman was the coach? The one really good game that we had uh, against the Falcons, you know, they were complaining about how loud it was when the Falcons were on the field because the Bear fans were taking the joint over. I mean, come on. We're way better than 12. 
but uh, we were number four in fan equity, so we, you know, we put out money uh, for the Bears. So we cracked the top five on that. Twelfth on social equity, but twelfth on road equity. So that that's the one that I thought was low. We should at least be top five uh, on road equity. You know, there are fewer teams. There are few teams in the league that travel better than the Bears do. I mean, you know, most people do not look forward to playing against the Bears at home because our fan base is a factor. And, um, you know, I, I think they got it low uh, on that one. And that was actually what killed the Packers because I think they were like seven in fan equity. I think they were in the, the you know, the top 15 and, you know, 10 or 12, somewhere in that area for the social equity. But road equity for them was 18. That's what killed their their uh, their average. And that's why they, they went out at nine. Um, the Vikings having the worst in the division at 24 the Lions coming in at 20 but uh, I think they got us uh, they ranked us a little low on the on the road uh, equity and uh, I can speak to that personally because the last three times I've seen the Bears play has been in uh, uh, St. Louis well the last two times St. Louis and Detroit I've been on the road to go see the Bears I haven't seen the Bears play in Soldier Field since the old Soldier Field was still standing back in 1994 so uh, yeah it's been a while so I haven't been into the new Soldier Field yet, as a matter of fact. But, um, you know, we travel much better than, you know, I know we're still ahead of, what, 20 other teams, but we're, we're better than 12. I, I, I disagree with that wholeheartedly. But uh, definitely cool that we're number six on the list overall. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, like I said, some pretty good company with some pretty intense fan bases, Cowboys, Patriots, Eagles, Giants, and Steelers in the top five. And, um, yeah, so the, the Bears belong in that company. Um, but we definitely need a higher ranking on the road equity uh, than 12. They can do better than that for us. So, anyway, that's my uh, my news and notes section. So we're going to go ahead and uh, step to the side and bring in our good, our new friend, I should say, uh, Spike Friedman from the Locked on Seahawks podcast to help us preview the 2018 Seattle Seahawks. Part number three of our NFC West opponent preview takes us to the the Pacific Northwest to talk about the Seattle Seahawks and to help us preview these uh, 2018 Seattle Seahawks. Spike Friedman from the Locked On Seahawks podcast. Spike, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. So, Spike, tell me, um, since you're new to the show, um, we always like to ask my guests the same three questions. Where are you from? Where are you now? And what is your favorite memory as a Seahawks fan? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I, I grew up in both uh, Bainbridge Island, Washington, a little island of ferry ride away from Seattle, uh, the Kingdom at the time where the Seahawks were playing. Sure. Uh, and Los Angeles. Uh, I've been back in Los Angeles for a couple of years. I was up in Seattle. I still write for the uh, weekly up there, The Stranger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and favorite memory of the team. So. I want to like go back to you know some fun game, but there just are like the heart. My heart has been shattered so many times as a Seahawks fan through the years right. until the most recent era. That like my my favorite memories are all recent. They are you know the tip for Richard Sherman right. uh, against the San Francisco Forty ers Like I wish 
my answer was when we drafted Rick Meyer, and I remember sitting in a round table pizza on the Olympic Peninsula being like, oh, we're going to get Drew Bledsoe, local boy made good, and then we didn't, and I cheered anyway because I was like six years old. Um, but for me, and then and then you have like the Hasselbeck era, but those all ended badly uh, as things are wont to do. So, yeah, I mean, God, uh, it, it's so many – if, I, if I've got one, though, it, it's weirdly – it's the year the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. They played a Monday nighter against the New Orleans Saints that I was lucky enough to be at. Hmm. And Michael Bennett had a strip sack that was uh, returned for a touchdown. Or maybe maybe April – I think it was Bennett, actually, was the one who stripped it, brought it back. And, I, and just in that moment, realizing that, oh, yeah, this Seahawks team, we've got it. We've got a real team. We've got a contender and there's no more doubt around this it's just a question of like are we gonna do it this year that moment for me was like just so thrilling to be able to be there for that yeah i bet um thank you for uh reminding me of rick myra uh by the way <laughs> yeah no problem because uh you guys were able to uh flip uh rick meyer to my team yeah uh for a first round pick which ended up being walter jones so um oh. That what? didn't. That How didn't... did I not remember that? Yeah, what? it was the uh, the good. number six pick in the draft in '97, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that was Walter Jones. Um, oh, I wow, think, that is. I think that you was got, a great obviously pick like you guys had two first round picks, and Walter Jones was one of them. I'm pretty sure. You know, I'm pretty sure that he was the pick you got from the Bears. My God! So oh. talk about getting fleeced on a trade, Rick Meyer for Walter Jones. You guys made out oh. like gangbusters on that oh, one. Well, so. we, also, we also gave you a fourth round pick. In oh, that well, there's oh. that. You know, I don't even know who that was. Like, so It looks like, and also to be fair, it looks like we used that pick. We used our other pick to get Walter Jones and used that uh, pick to get Sean Springs, who oh. was also awesome and one of my favorite players. Yeah, so. it was also a Seahawk legend. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you guys made wow. out. You guys did okay with that draft. Yeah. Uh Okay, yeah, so that was, uh, thank you for reminding me. Hey, no problem. The least <laughs> I can do, the least I can do. The, who, do you know who the GM was back then? He was able to talk the Bears into a first-round pick for Rick Meyer? I don't remember who the 1997 Seahawks GM was. Um, it wasn't Holmgren no, yet, was it? No, uh, Dennis Erickson was still the coach. Okay. Uh, God, who was the GM then? Ah. I was 11 years old. I should have this. This was a big <laughs> moment for me. Here we go. Let's get it. Uh, 97, it was oh weird. So it was a co-GM situation with Randy uh-huh. Muller and Bob Whitsitt. Okay. Holmgren, Holmgren took over in 99. Right. Okay. Uh, I have no specific memory of that. That's right after uh, Paul Allen bought the team, though. So clean okay. house. Clean okay. house. Wow. Yeah. So there's that memory. What a what a disaster that was for the Bears. I think he only started like three games for us. He just he was just awful. And we gave up a first round pick for him. That turned out to be a perennial all pro, whether it was Jones or Springs, just Yeah. yeah, You guys hit on both those picks. Yeah, the question is, was it a Hall of Famer or was it merely a consistent pro (laughs) bowl? Right. Uh, either way, you got your money's worth out of that pick, and we certainly did not. So, um, anyway, on to 2017. Um, you know, you guys uh, made it back to the playoffs in 2016, what, the fifth year in a row? Yeah. Uh, 2016. Um, 
you know, just like the Seahawks are our, you know, usual uh, visitors to the uh, to the postseason. But uh, going into uh, 2017, um, I don't know. It was good. It was, uh, you know, it just seemed like the, the team was on its, uh, I mean, did it feel like the team was on its last leg as far as the, the team that won Super Bowl 48? Was that like the, 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 the final curtain call for that team? Did you have a feeling going into 2017 like that? The team was thin going into the season, but it didn't necessarily feel like the end. And you could tell by the moves that John Schneider made last year that they were thinking about pushing all their chips in for one last run. I mean, you look at them making a big move to get Sheldon Richardson and then during the season making a big move to get Dwayne Brown. Even at that point in the year, what was that, six, seven weeks in, the Seahawks still felt like a potential contender. The thing was is... The injuries were brutal last year. Uh, Cliff Averill going down for the season, Cam Chancellor going down for the season on similar freak neck injuries. Uh, that's That was tough to come back from. George Fant going down at left tackle. Now, every team deals with injuries. The Eagles, you know, they lose their left tackle and they lose Carson Wentz and they win the Super Bowl. But when you're the, – the Seahawks felt thin and it's because they had – three rough drafts from 2013 to 2015 that that when you're looking at guys going right into that second contract, there was sort of a hollow middle in the team. And last year was the year they needed to get lucky to paper over that. And they really didn't do it. Um, Mm. And so for me going into the year, there was hope. I mean, you look at that team when they beat the Eagles, they played great. They had, I think at that point, April and Chancellor were out, but the rest of the team was pretty well intact. I think Sherman might have been out by that point, too. Oh, boy. I'm not remembering exactly. But that that team, the offensive line played really well together. It was right after they acquired Brown. And, they, you know, they, they handled the Eagles. And that moment, it was like, oh, maybe, maybe. And then it just fell apart from there in a lot of different ways. And you also look at the margins. When you've got a team that goes 9-7 and seven, – and loses multiple games because of missed field goals. Yeah. Like like the fact that they had Blair Walsh as their kicker last year. If they had, you know, and they and they didn't they didn't build in the cap room to have him, but if they had an elite kicker, if they had a Tucker or even I mean even a rejuvenated Hauschka, if they'd kept Hauschka and put him in whatever wayback machine the Bills put him in, uh you'd have a team that won 10 or 11 games and would have been on the fringes of the playoff contention even with all those injuries. And so it's a weird thing coming out of last season that they did so much turnover. I mean, they turned over both coordinator slots. They lose Michael Bennett. They lose Richard Sherman. Cam Chancellor unlikely to play. Cliff Averill retired. Earl Thomas on the trading block. After a year when they were a kicker away from going 11-5 and despite losing four All-Pros on defense, you're like, okay. All right. Um, but that's that's what happens when you push all your chips in and it doesn't pay off. Right. I mean, so you mentioned those drafts, 2013 to 2015. Isn't that the stretch where the Seahawks basically refused to take a pick in the first round? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, you know, they trade for Harvin that first time. And actually, I don't mind that trade. You look at that 2013 draft up and down the board and it's rough. You know, there there weren't there weren't stars at the back of the first round that they missed on really there. Mm-hmm. Twenty fourteen though is the one where a lot of teams got better in that draft. 
and the Seahawks got worse because of that draft. That was a real disaster for them. And that is the draft where they acquired Jimmy Graham, who I think had a more positive impact on the Seahawks while he was there. Obviously an up-and-down tenure defined by the Patella tendon tear uh, that cost him the better part of a season and then limited his explosiveness. And then it, the way they used him was always pretty questionable until the very end of his tenure on the team. But trait losing that pick in 2014, when there were so many stars that went out of that draft, that's a really rough one for where, where the team is right now. Hmm. So just, just real briefly, you, you mentioned, you know, it kind of fell apart in, in 2017 I was kind of looking at it, and it said, you know, at the very top when I was looking at the schedule that they were nine and seven. I was like, okay, so we we got a loss, and then a loss at Green Bay to start the year. You got the win over San Francisco, uh, where you won a battle of field goals, twelve to nine. Uh, yeah. Then you lose on the road at Tennessee, home you thrash the Colts, forty six to eighteen. Then the win over the Rams, and that was really before they were the Rams. Uh, last year, or at least before they were the darlings in, of the league at that point. It was still early well, before that happened. I was at that game, and the Seahawks got very lucky. Um, Earl Thomas forced a fumble on Todd Gurley out the back of the end zone. That was essentially a 10-point swing in what ended up being a very close game. Also that game, Blair Walsh didn't miss a kick, and Greg Zerline did. Greg Zerline doesn't miss a lot of kicks. In a lot of ways, the Seahawks caught some real breaks to win that game, and it still required a Cooper Cup drop in the end zone as the clock expired for them to hold on to win that game. So even though the Rams weren't there, that was a scary one. Although, that said, at L.A. for the for and then at St. Louis before that, always a whammy for the Seahawks team throughout this run when even when Jeff Fisher was the coach they always found a way to get our number so uh, at, at the time what what the game actually showed was a shifting of power but the result the Seahawks winning on the road against the Rams actually felt like them shedding their demons a little bit so it's weird to sort of look back on that game that was so close and be like that was the harbinger of the change of, of power in the NFC West when it didn't feel like that at the time sure then you go the bye week after the Rams game. Then you come, uh, you're on the road. You're at the Giants. You you thrash them, which pretty much everybody did last <laughs> yeah. year. Then you follow that up with uh, with the home win over the Texans, and probably one of the more entertaining games that I saw uh, last year. That shootout between Wilson and uh, and Deshaun Watson. It was you know he had had some good performances before then, but that was really kind of the the coming out party for Watson to have that performance against that team in Seattle. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the more fun games I've ever gotten to watch as a fan. Uh, and and it, was fun to, it was fun to watch Watson do some work. And then also, have, there, uh, Earl had a pick on him that was like, you got me once, but you're not going to get me again. And then Watson goes back and, and, and hits for a couple more big touchdowns. And, I mean, Wilson was playing out of his mind. And he actually had... He had a weird year last year. I mean, he he was so responsible for the Seahawks offense, both as a runner and a passer. There was just nobody else doing anything. And that game, everything came together. His accuracy was on point all game. And it just felt like, oh, okay, this is the version of the Seahawks where the offense powers them going forward. Also, I mean, you know, the Texans by that point in the year were down uh, J.J. Watt. So the fact that the Seahawks offensive line was their weak point 
meant that they weren't really getting exploited the way that some other teams were able to exploit them. Like even Green Bay was able to exploit them um, early in the season with Mike Daniels against a pretty green offensive line that involved Riso Diombo starting at left tackle. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. Wow. So um, you, you, the, the Redskins snapped the four-game streak with a 17-14 win in Seattle, which is – that doesn't happen very often. You yep. did uh, – Go ahead. Blair Walsh missed uh, 75 kicks in that game, if I remember correctly. Nice. So only 75? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah you, you, you pull out the win over Arizona on Thursday night. I think that's the game that Sherman went down, wasn't it? Because he yeah, was wearing and, that god-awful green yep. uniform. And Chancellor, too. Chancellor went down at the end of that game as well. Wow. He okay. got kicked in the helmet, if I remember correctly. But you came away with a win there. Uh, then you go Monday night uh, home against the Falcons and and lose 34 to 31 you beat the 49ers and then you smack around the eagles on sunday night football so not only did you beat the eagles you beat them on national tv the whole world was watching and I believe you were the guys to snap their what eight nine game win streak at the time wasn't it yeah they were they were playing they were playing out of their minds and the seahawks just went out the, the seahawks had a big issue with penalties especially coming from the offensive line i believe germana fetty led the league in penalties pretty comfortably last year. And I feel like that Eagles game was them putting together a really disciplined and effective game plan and just executing. They just executed really well that day. And, they, yeah, they were down a couple of real stars on the defensive side of the ball. But the execution was there, so they weren't giving free first downs. They weren't turning the ball over on – or giving the ball – forcing themselves to punt. They weren't shooting themselves in the foot the same way they had earlier in the year. So that – I mean, that was – them showing what they could do and at that point in the season it felt like all right i think we're gonna get in and be the wild card team you know it felt like exactly it felt that way because you're you're eight and four at that point you're you're eight and four going into the fourth quarter of the season and then you're at jacksonville home for the rams at dallas and then home for arizona and you lose three out of those last four to finish nine and seven and fall out of the playoffs. Now, yeah. the last week of the season at Arizona, were you guys still playing for a spot or were you already mathematically out? We were TV watching. Okay. So it, it was, I believe, the Falcons-Panthers game. And the it, would it, that result went against us, so it didn't matter whether we won or lost. But that game ended with Blair Walsh missing a potential game-winning field goal. And the camera ju- just goes straight to Pete Carroll and you could just see him just go, are you effing kidding me? <laughs> and and it's just like that was the summation of how we ended that season was, are you effing kidding me? Because, like, at, at that point, the it looked like the, I think it was the Panthers needed to win and they had sort of locked it up. The Panthers, I didn't think they were a particularly great team last year in the NFC. And it was sort of down to the two of us for that sixth slot. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just won a couple more close ones than we did. They just executed a little better late in games a couple more times. And that was the margin. And yeah, I mean, like the Seahawks were nine and seven. But as you go through it, you're like, that's not a bad nine and seven season. That's the sort of thing that happens. But then you get to this offseason, you're like, whoa, there's not a lot of continuity even between that 9-7 and seven team and what we're going to be putting on the field this year. Yeah, I mean, a lot of heavy departures here. I mean, some it's kind of a, uh, you know, a, a who's who of, uh, yep. of Seahawks that are no longer on the team. I mean, Cliff Averill, like you mentioned, he's retired. Jeremy Lane is gone. Uh, you, you guys cut loose Blair Walsh, and I'm not sure anybody cried over that one. 
But yeah, I'm not uh, crying over Jeremy Lane either, if I'm right. being totally honest. Okay. But, uh, you know, Michael Bennett's uh, traded away to Philadelphia. Richard Sherman uh, released and then signs with arch rival San Francisco. Oh, and as so you bad. mentioned, And as you mentioned before, Jimmy Graham uh, headed to Green Bay to terrorize my Bears for the next few years, twice a season. So, um, you know, you also let go of Michael Wilhoit and uh, Eddie Lane, or excuse me, Eddie Lacy uh, yep. as well. And, uh, you know, those are some pretty big names that, uh, that you, you know, the, that Schneider and company had to try to fill. Uh, in the offseason there. Yeah, and you can add on uh, our first-round pick from last year, Malik McDowell, is rumored to be released when it's most convenient for the team's salary cap purposes. Uh, after he suffered an ATV accident, it will likely prevent him from ever playing NFL football. Oh, and geez. also can yeah, and also Cam Chancellor, still on the team now, has injury guarantees for this season, which is good for him as a player. It hurts the team from a salary cap perspective, but... You know, I got to support the guy, uh, but he is unlikely to play this year. They're waiting on one more scan, but the team is prepared to move on without him. So that's another big star and a guy who was going to slot in up front who are not there in addition to all those huge names you mentioned. And a lot of those names went to rivals in the conference. I mean, you can also add Sheldon Richardson going to Minnesota. Yeah. You know, yeah. you've got... You've, and the fact that of all those guys that we have to see Richard Sherman twice a year for the next couple of years, he's not the sort of guy who lets things go. No, he's you not. know, like like the things I loved about rooting for Richard Sherman are why I hate that he is in our division. <laughs> he is going to do everything he can to ruin my life for the next couple of years, and I'm not happy about it. Sure, I mean, I just I just talked to my to my San Francisco guy over the. Uh, <laughs> over the weekend and he said the exact same thing that you just said you know he's like i've hated that guy because he wasn't mine now that he's mine you know let him be that guy let him go out there and talk all the trash he's the one that can he can walk the walk he has always been able to do that and i think that's what people hate about him almost in the vein of like a a Deion sanders where the yep. guy's mouth was always running but you the one thing you couldn't deny was that he could back up every single bit of that talk yeah I mean, Sherman is such a technician. He's such a smart player. He, I'm, even even into last year when he was playing on a partially torn Achilles early in the year uh, that obviously got exacerbated when it ruptured, he was still executing at a really high level. And I felt that coming into the season, his last season and a half, I feel like the, the narrative was Richard Sherman's lost a step. And maybe he had lost a step from his absolute peak in 2013 and 2014, but he was still a top-five cornerback in the league. When you look at passer rating against, when you look at touchdowns against, he's one of the top guys. When you saw how quarterbacks like Aaron Rodgers treated him, they didn't throw at him going into last season. So if he can recover from this injury, he is still an absolute force on the field. Um, we didn't get anything for him. And when you look at the return on the Michael Bennett trade, that one hurts too because – he such a great player, a great part of the community um, up in Seattle, really smart, interesting guy, uh, a guy I like to root for. And the fact that, you know, we got a fifth rounder for him. The hope was you get, especially given our shortage of picks coming this year, the hope was at least get a day two pick and just weren't able to do it, despite the fact he was very effective last year. And he's going to potentially be a real impact player for the Eagles. Did he just wear out his welcome in Seattle? I mean, what really happened there? I mean, he was, like you said, his productivity 
says he should definitely be a part of this team. Was his contract coming up and they're just trying to, to get rid of him so they know that they can get something for him? Or did he wear out his welcome? Because you know those Bennett boys like to talk. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I mm-hmm. think there was a little bit of like cleaning up the culture. Sure. Which again, I'm not a huge fan of as a fan. I, I like it when the players are outspoken. I like that the team was willing to bear that for as long as they were. And so have moving on from Bennett for that reason, selling him at a bit of a discount doesn't feel great. At the same time, the Chancellor injury guarantee really hurt their cap situation this year, and they needed they needed to get money wherever they could. Um, that said, the fact that they have not put that money into re-signing Earl Thomas is genuinely maddening um, because, <laughs> to my mind, Earl, you know, he's still not that old. I believe he's 29 still. Hmm. He's still the best center fielder in the league. He's arguably the best safety, period, in the league. And Pete Carroll's system relies on him. And when you're moving Shaq Griffin over to CB1, replacing Richard Sherman, and then you've got Justin Coleman, who was great in the slot last year, but you're trying out new guys at that second corner spot. or And then you got Byron Maxwell as a backup, but we've seen how shaky Byron Maxwell can be. You really need a great center fielder, and they have it in Earl. And then Bradley McDougald played well last year, and he's a good Cam Chancellor replacement. So you're like, oh, man, yeah, if they put all that money towards keeping Earl Thomas, it, it would really lessen the sting of moving on from a guy like Bennett where you know, they took a discounted price, I think, to do a little bit of that personality cleanup. He's also getting older. You know, He's getting older. He had injury issues. So I don't know. They had to get younger on that D-line. It just is hard. It's hard, especially with Averill retiring, to see where the where the pass rush is going to come from outside of Frank Clark. Yeah, to lose your to lose both your bookends like that in one off season, that's a pretty tough blow to absorb. Not a fan of it. Not not a fan of it. <laughs> no, I definitely understand. So, um, so we talked about some of your subtractions, but one that uh, I heard you mention rather enthusiastically when you had a chance to talk to my buddy Lauren Cox on the Locked On Bears podcast was the uh, subtraction of Tom Cable as your offensive line coach. He is gone, and you think that's addition by a subtraction. I think that's the phrase you used on the show. I think it's got to be. I mean, so I'll I'll say this. I am not a professional football player or coach, and there are professional football players and coaches who say that Tom Cable is one of the best offensive line coaches in the league. Now, if that is true – then I don't. Then we have the worst drafting and development system in the history of the NFL. <laughs> the the amount of resources that have been thrown at the offensive line by the Seahawks uh, for a couple of years there, they were going cheap on it and relying on Tom Cable and to into to turn like the likes of Breno Giacomini into useful NFL players, and he did that pretty well. But when it came to drafting, you know, we gave him a lot of first round picks and a lot of third round picks and a second round pick. And he wasn't turning those guys into NFL starters. And he was getting Russell Wilson killed. Yeah. And the, he was turning our running game into a disaster. Last year, running backs on the Seahawks rushed for one touchdown. Oh, wow. That's not good. No, that's, definitely not. That, yeah, like it's stunning. Like that's how responsible Russell Wilson was for the offensive output. And you can watch some of the highlights from last year where we were going up against teams and they'd have two, three guys in the backfield in under a second. There were plays that broke down in ways that are just catastrophic. 
And a lot of it is Cable ran a complicated zone blocking scheme, and he wasn't teaching the guys how to execute it. And you can blame the NFL offseason workout rules or what, but you got to work under those constraints and you got to adjust your scheme to work under those constraints. And he just wasn't doing it. And so moving on from him and replacing him with Mike Solari, who's got a track record in the league of being solid. And I'm excited about solid. I'm excited about the idea of just solid blocking for Russell Wilson in our run game, getting back to the fundamentals there, giving Wilson time to execute in the pocket sometimes at the very least, you know, getting, a line that actually has some talent. Dwayne Brown, obviously a great left tackle. Justin Britt, a solid center. Ethan Posick looked good in stretches at guard last year. Fant is back to challenge a Fetty for right tackle. Hopefully a new system can get a Fetty away from his false start and holding issues. They really derailed the offense last year. And all of a sudden you look at that and you're like, all right, that could work. That, that, that looks workable. Now, this is the time of year when Seahawks fans always talk themselves into the offensive line. But <laughs> I am like, it can't be worse. It literally cannot be worse. So, right. you know, it, it, the question there, though, is we are also trading off our offensive coordinator, going from Daryl Bevel, who, despite some questionable play calling, obviously in the Super Bowl, something that I want to move past. Uh, but also, throughout his tenure, he, he was questioned for his play calling. The Seahawks had a real feast or famine offense. Uh, they'd have games where they were the best team in the league. They'd have games where they couldn't string two first downs together for a half. Um, replacing him with Brian Schottenheimer, who hasn't been good, he was really ineffective at Georgia. Nobody's particularly excited about what he's doing. Uh, you know, especially when you're in a division where Sean McVay is doing such fascinating things with the Rams, where you've got um, uh, Shanahan doing amazing things in San Francisco. It feels rough to go with sort of a retrograde pick as an, our offensive coordinator. So the Solari move, I'm really excited about going back to basics. The Schottenheimer move, I'm equally unexcited to sort of be going back to basics on the offensive side. How it shakes out, I don't know. And I think that's going to be the big question when training camp starts is what sort of packages are they installing? What are they going to try to do on offense? Because it's really tough to say. Well, I mean, do you think that the focus is going to be on protecting Russell Wilson? Because i got to tell you, as a a football fan, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm watching as as the the best quarterbacks in the league are – older and you know the guys that are going to come up behind them it's not it's there's not a lot of great quarterback play in the league right now and Russell Wilson is one of those guys that is actually uh, a great player and uh, you know the the real question is will he survive long enough to achieve true greatness or will he get beat to death and be one of those what could have been kind of guys yeah I mean it's genuinely amazing he hasn't missed a start yet and that's after suffering some pretty nasty injuries uh last year not last year, the year before he suffered some real nasty injuries um, that limited him, and he played through it. I mean, he's been really durable. He's been a really good, and it's and, and you think about when he does have time, how effective he is, the fact that he is a top-five quarterback in those moments. You, you want to see it. You really want to see what it looks like for him to execute. When people talk about comps for him, the one that resonates most strongly with me is weirdly not like a Drew Brees where the physical type is more the same. But I think about him as like a Ben Roethlisberger type, not off the field, on the field. And <laughs> I, I, 
I think about the way the evasiveness, the deep ball, the ability to do so much as an offensive player and, and execute it about that level. Where I think about him being is Roethlisberger. And Roethlisberger had a little dip in the middle of his career when the team around him sort of had to shift to a new group. And I'm hoping that that's what happens around Russell Wilson is is we're in a little bit of a dip, but he'll be able to come out of it and have another, you know, great five, six years of really top level play. And I think that's very reasonable, honestly, to expect. He's shown he can make every pass. He's shown he can be elusive. He's shown he can work in the pocket at this point. So there's not much he can't do, but nobody can survive the sort of pass rush he had to face last year. And I, you know, I hope they figure it out um, because, like I said, you know, the NFL needs guys like Russell Wilson uh, out there. So it would be it would be a great thing that if uh, you know the offensive line could figure it out to at least save him, you know, some of those bumps and bruises, so he can be one of those guys that's playing into his late thirties. And we're wondering, you know, when's the when's the fountain of youth going to run out on this guy? As opposed to, boy, you imagine what Russell Wilson could have done if he'd have just been able to stay healthy or not taken so much of a beating and have to you know quit early and, and things like that. Yeah, and he managed to avoid hits the first couple of years of his career. He was incredible at sliding, getting out of bounds. That hasn't been available for him the last couple of years, and he's taken more hits over the last two seasons than I would like him to take over an entire career. Sure, sure. So let's move on to, to draft night, because I'm sure that was a very interesting night for you. Yeah. Um, the, the Seahawks go into it with, what, the, the 18th pick in the first mm-hmm. round? And um, as the Seahawks tend to do, uh, they trade in the in the first round. They trade down uh, as the as has been the habit over the years. Usually, they're trading. They're picking in the very late stages of the first round. They're trading out uh, of the first round. But instead, they will from eighteen and drop down to twenty seven. And when their pick finally comes up, with Harold Landry still on the board to replace Michael Bennett, with Josh Jackson still on the board to add some depth to the cornerback position. The Seahawks go running back and not Dar- not Darius Geis or or anyone with that was kind of a household name. They go with Rashad Penny, the running back out of San Diego State. And I think I was watching the ESPN feed at the time, and those guys had no idea what to make of what the Seahawks were doing with that one. I don't either. I do <laughs> I, I am on the record as not liking the pick, and it isn't about not liking Penny. Right. You know, I think Penny could be very good the fact that he's not much of a pass blocker and the fact that Chris Carson is really good and they stole him in the seventh round last year he got hurt midway through last season but he's come back and has been the best running back in OTAs that that they had a starting caliber running back already on the roster who was in his second year the fact that they spent that level of draft capital on a running back who can't play all three downs, who isn't a Saquon Barkley, who is a weapon, is both a pass catcher and a running back, the sort of guy you can really hang your hat. I mean, that the, the they spent and aim with so many holes on the roster, so many places where they needed to get value, especially given their salary cap constraints that they put it on a running back, it just kills me. And and the trade down, they didn't do great on that trade. They didn't mm. get a ton of value for it. When you look at – I mean, you can look what the Packers did when they traded down uh, t- with the Saints and uh, for when the Saints wanted to trade up to get Marcus Davenport. The Packers got another first-rounder for that. Yeah, now, exactly. mind you, Saints blew it. That's a terrible nightmare. And 
I'm sure you're not happy about that as a Bears fan that the uh, Packers are coming into next year with an extra first rounder. No, nope. but I'm like, yeah, I. But I'm like, we we picked up what like a third rounder for that. I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. There was like it, it didn't feel like a haul, and then it didn't feel like we got an impact player that is really going to fill one of those holes with all those guys walking. And I think you're right. I think defensive defensive line was a big spot for us. I think um, potentially, yeah, secondary is a big spot for us. I don't think we answered those questions. And we're, again, coming into this season thin, and our running back room is overflowing. We're going to end up cutting someone who's good. And I, why? Like, Why? Like I don't, I don't understand the pick. And you look at just first round picks in general. Like the value of it is, you get that extra year. You get that extra year. Yeah. And with a running back, the length of their careers, it doesn't make sense to want an extra year. Even if Rashawn Penny is great, even if he is a thousand yard rusher, are we gonna really want to pick up that option at like eight million or whatever it's gonna like? We, I don't know. I don't think he's Ezekiel Elliott good, so I don't know if we're even want to pick up that option. So for me, I just get very frustrated with the thought process that leads to picking Rashawn Penny in that moment. Now, mind you, the rest of the draft I like. We picked up a great developmental DN. We filled some other roles, other places. I love our punter. I'm 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 on the Michael Dixon punt wagon. I love <laughs> the idea. We had we had poor special teams last year for the first time in the Pete Carroll era. A lot of that was a knock-on effect of the injuries having to take guys off of teams and put them right into the starting lineup. We lost. Um, we also lost one of our two gunners early in the year, which is uh, a very DeAndre Elliott, which feels like a small move, but made a huge difference on our punk coverage team. We were not good covering punts last year, but I love the idea, especially in a division where Johnny Hecker is torturing us with his punts all the time, that we've got a guy to torture the Rams right back. Love that. Absolutely. Love going fifth round punter and i know that's a little bit of a controversial stance but i will not back down from it fifth round is a crapshoot if you can get the best punter of his generation which we might have done hey i'm all in well you know i went to uh i went to college with a guy that got drafted in the fifth round by the uh chargers mike cypress uh from western western illinois yeah yeah he was in the league for 14 years or something something like that i went to college uh, with him i knew mike very well and uh you know he got picked in the fifth round uh, by the by, the Chargers. So I mean, it's uh, it's not a bad place to take a chance uh, yeah, on a punter. And he was absolutely great in San Diego. Mike, Seifer, uh, he had a great run there, yeah. and it, that's exactly it. It's like because the team is salary cap constrained, they cannot go out and spend on their team's guys right now. Have getting a guy in the fifth round, he's going to be cheap, and if he can be that good, if he can be an anchor of the special teams unit for eight to ten years, I'm all in. So yep. Love, love that. Love that as a comparison. Yeah, not a bad, uh, not a bad uh, choice there. If, if Dixon can, if Dixon can have a career like Mike's, then you guys made out like bandits on on getting him in the fifth round. So, yep. Um, and then of course you guys had the feel good story of day three with yeah. uh, taking Shaquem Griffin, uh, the linebacker with the uh, with the missing hand, uh, who was the darling of the of the combine, and then gets picked in the fifth round, joining his brother on the team. Yep, I love it. Keel Griffin was our best rookie last year, and we had some good rookies. I mean, Chris Carson was good. We had a good draft the year before, um, but Keel was the best. I mean, he was good enough. The team is moving him to 
take Richard Sherman's spot. And there's no reason to think that he's going to be Richard Sherman good, but there's no reason to think he can't be a number one corner in the NFL. Uh, and you look at what he does, his speed, and you look at what Shaquem does. Shaquem ran the same 40 time, but he has the weight and heft on his body of a linebacker. Mm-hmm. And you get the two of them in the lineup together, that's a ton of speed on that defense. The only reason Shaquem wasn't a second rounder is because he's missing a hand. Yeah. He's not a wider receiver. He's not a tight end. I can live with that. Uh, I love the story, and I also love the idea of putting two twins on the field together. They got, <laughs> like, so much of defense is subtle communication, is knowing where the other guys are going to be. It's doing those handoffs in coverage, you know? And, like, what better than having two twins together? I'm thrilled about uh, that pick. I think it's going to work out well. I think Keem's going to be a monster on special teams this year, too. You got that size and speed combination. He's going to be able to work his way into the lineup. He's potentially a K.J. Wright replacement in the long term. He also could play, um, I think you mentioned Michael Wilhoyt left the team. That third linebacker spot, um, since Bruce Irvin is left, has been a bit of a hole. Now, they don't play that every down. They usually have a nickel corner in there. Uh, Justin Coleman did a great job. That was a great trade the team made last year to get him from the Patriots. Uh, But on those downs where they're in a base defense, Keem could be that guy to step in this year, and I'm really excited to see what that looks like. So anyone else uh, in the – you said you like the, the draft class. Uh, who else amongst the, the picks not Rashad Penny and Shaquille Griffin did you, did you like? I mean, I like, I like Jamarco Jones as a potential uh, option at offensive line. He slid. He slid deep. And I'm like, all right, fifth rounder, you've got a guy who some people thought was a second, third round talent. Now, he did not test well. And Lord knows Tom Cable never would have drafted him because Tom Cable only got drafts guys who tested well. But, you know, if he if he's the sort of if we're changing how we think about composing our offensive line, he could find a slot. I don't love the Will Disley pick uh, tight end out of Washington, Mm -hmm. uh, but we need depth at that position right now. Uh, I don't know what the answer is. We got Ed, Ed Dixon and Nick Vanett there. I don't love that group. I don't know how Schottenheimer is going to use the tight ends. So that's all just a big question mark to me. I think Rasheem Green is a potential Michael Bennett replacement. He is inexperienced. He's green. Um, But I think he's got the body type, the skill set, and the pedigree to be able to fill that DTDN hybrid role that Bennett did so well. Play some three technique, play off the edge. I think he's going to be a really good piece for the team going forward. Trey Flowers has potential. I mean, like, you look up and down this draft, I'm like, I get a lot of these moves. I don't, you know, I we, we took Alex, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, quarterback, seventh round. I was going to ask you, because it's spelled like McCough, like yeah. C-O-U-G-H, but is it McCoo? Is it McCough? Is it McGuff? You know, Magoo. whatever. I, I think it's Magoo. I think it's Magoo. <laughs> But, like, I don't feel confident in that. Right. Uh, and also, I'm not confident he's going to stick on the team very long. Uh, so I'm not, you know, I think he's going to be a practice squad guy. Maybe it works out, maybe not. But I just think they answered some questions. Again, I really like the green pick. I like the Griffin pick. Uh, I like uh, the Dixon pick. Uh, you know, play really don't like that penny pick and it's tough to come back from missing your first rounder when you don't have your second rounder right because you gave that up for Dwayne Brown correct uh yeah well we gave yeah we gave up 
for Dwayne Brown this year, yeah. And we give a uh, second rounder last year for Sheldon Richardson. Just getting that order right uh, <laughs> of what second round picks we've given away. Uh, Sean Richardson going to Minnesota. That's a quietly heartbreaking one. Um, that felt like a great trade when it happened and that it didn't feel like a great trade. I mean, he played well. He was really effective against – I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. What? I mean, is it, do you think it's because you guys are strapped for cash that you weren't able to get like a Richardson back or a keep keep a Jimmy Graham or was, was Graham headed out anyway? I think Graham was gone no matter what. Uh, he had a lot of drops last year. Huh. Paul Richardson, too. Both of them had a ton of drops last year. Obviously, they both had great plays. I mean, Jimmy Graham was a monster in the red zone, had a ton of touchdowns. Paul Richardson is a great field-stretching option. I think the Redskins vastly overpaid for him, but I think he's a useful second receiver. Uh, that said, those weren't, those weren't contracts where we could afford to match, and I don't think there was any way Graham was coming back. The Richardson one, though, the fact that he signed for one year under $10 million, that's tough. It's tough to lose him the same year we trade Bennett away. It felt like he could provide some of that, uh, some of that quality at defensive tackle. That said, Jaron Reed looks really good. Naz Jones is really good. They're not pass-rushing D-tackles, but they're really good run-stuffers. So I'm not – our D-tackle situation isn't a nightmare. We also acquired a couple of guys from Minnesota on the cheap that – so that it's okay, but we don't have a game wrecking pass rusher from the inside anymore. Yeah, we really didn't talk about who you added uh, to the team. You mentioned that you added uh, Ed Dixon, uh, the tight end from mm-hmm. Carolina. You go out and you get Barkevius Mingo from the Colts, who's kind of like a failed, you know, top ten draft yep. choice uh, at one point. I guess they're going to bring him in to help rush the passer. Uh, Brandon Marshall, talk to me about Brandon Marshall. Is he even going to make the team this year? I don't. I genu- I think it's a coin flip. I think it's a coin flip. And I think if he does make the team, he could be useful. Yeah. Certainly our receiving core isn't great. I mean, Doug Baldwin, I think, is one of the best slot receivers in the league. Sure. Tyler Lockett, uh, they're saying he's healthy and he's going to recover his speed. Last year, he wasn't great. He didn't have that speed. He flashed as a rookie before he broke his leg in the second year. Um, and he needs that speed to be effective. But he's a really smart player Tyler Lockett so if he gets his speed back I think it can be really useful but like that's not a great receiving course so if Marshall has anything left in the tank great that said based on last year oh boy and he's getting old <laughs> he's getting old he yeah he's not a- yeah he's he's kind of an ageless wonder and he's getting old all at the same time because you know I mean he was he was kind of up there when he was with Chicago for the three or four yep. years that we we had him, and it's been what this is like the fourth season we've been without him, uh, yeah. you know. And here he is moving on to his second or third team since then. And, and he was um, before that. I yeah. mean, like, yeah, like he's been around. Uh, yeah, if he were, if if we were getting him at the age the Jets got him at, oh, I'd be psyched right now. I'd right. be, I'd be like, ooh, that's a great reclamation project. As is, I'm like, maybe, maybe, right? Uh, who knows? Who but knows? if if. Um, if Marshall makes the team, and I know you won't argue this point at all, if Marshall makes the team for his sake, you have to make the playoffs this year because the poor bastard has been in the league like 15 years or however long it is now, not make the postseason one time uh, in his That's career. True? Yeah, the team it never happened when he was in Denver. It never happened when he was in Miami. 
Uh, you know, the first year he was in Chicago was about as close as he ever got. We went 10 and six. Actually, in 2013, we were a win away from winning the division and we blew that game against Green Bay as well. We trade him. Obviously, he's not going anywhere with the Jets and, you know, the Giants won two games last year and he was on the, you know, on injured reserve for most of the season. He has not made the postseason at all throughout his stellar Hall of Fame worthy career. He has never made the postseason. That is shocking. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, he should have come here earlier. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, it's not that the Seahawks can't make the playoffs right. this year. It's not that their talent isn't there. NFC is good this year. Yeah. Everybody has an answer at quarterback. So there's no free wins in the NFC this year, which makes it really tough to see a team that's as thin as the Seahawks making the playoffs without getting a little bit lucky or having Russell Wilson elevate and becoming a next level player above and beyond what he's already become, which I don't know. I don't know that his ceiling is higher than we've already seen. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be tough. I mean, I, I I don't know that I like what the Rams did from like the win forever team building perspective that I've been lucky enough to have with the Seahawks where we were able to make the playoffs a lot over the past decade, sure. decade and a half. We've been in the playoffs a lot. Uh, the Rams made some win now moves that felt like they were pushing maybe too many chips into the middle too early. Right. But that said, this year, they're going to be ferocious, and San Francisco vastly improved. Arizona's not a pushover. They were 8-8 eight and eight last year, and they've only gotten better, and it's possible they found their quarterback. I think Josh Rosen has the potential to be that guy. And you look at your division, I mean, Minnesota is great. Green Bay still has Aaron Rodgers. If Trubisky is something, you guys are really dangerous. Yeah. So it's not – there's no freebies out there for the Seahawks this year. And I'm like, oh, boy, if this is Brandon Marshall's last hurrah, sorry, bud, but you missed your window of coming to the Seahawks and getting a freebie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I've talked about this a lot with, with all my guests about just what a murderer's row the NFC has become over the years. I didn't, even, I didn't mention the Saints or the Eagles who right. were the two best teams of the conference last year. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's amazing that, you know, with the Eagles and the way that they played, arguably still the best team in football, Right now, three teams from the South make the playoffs last year. Uh, you know, the, the, the Vikings uh, make it into the NFC title game, and they're as good, if not better, than they were a year ago. And like you said, Rodgers is back with the Packers, and they were an, a 7-9 and nine team. He's going to get them at least two or three wins coming back, at least being on the field for 16 games if he's healthy. If Nagy and this new offense to go with Trubisky and all the new weapons – who knows what's going on there? And then Stafford and the Lions, if they yeah. can add a running game to what they're doing in Detroit, then God help us all kind of thing. So, I mean, it's one of those things where it's, uh, you know, the, the, the AFC is, is so boring compared to what's going on in the NFC because it's so tough to make it uh, out of the NFC these days. I mean, you can have a season this year where a 10-win team can miss the playoffs because the, the, the NFC is that deep this year. I think this. I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. I think a ten-win team will miss the playoffs in the NFC, maybe more than one. Yeah. I mean, the only team where I look and I'm like, eh, is Tampa without Jameis. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's the only team where I'm like, I don't see it at all. I don't see it at all there. But but if Jameis comes back a hundred percent, they're dangerous too. Yeah. So like, yeah. I mean, everywhere has a possible answer oh i guess honestly new york new york's the other one the giants 
I don't I think they blew it by I don't think Saquon Barkley is a bad pick at two for the right team. I don't think a team with an elderly Eli Manning at quarterback is the right team. I think they missed an opportunity to grab their quarterback of the future in this draft. Mm -hmm. So that's a team where I look at them and I'm like, okay, that's not great. But like if Eli Manning is the worst quarterback in the conference, that ain't bad. That's a problem. Yeah, that's that's pretty remarkable. If that actually ends up being the being the case uh in the nfc uh that year so real quick let's go through the uh through the schedule for you guys um you start at denver uh week one then you come to chicago on monday night football back-to-back road games to kick off the season home for the cowboys in that arizona uh your first division game uh to wrap up the first quarter uh of the year um are you a big fan of three out of four to start the season does it matter you know that kind of thing Honestly, I think, uh, again, just we, we by flipping the offensive coordinator so much, there's so many questions right mm-hmm. now that I have for this team. And I'm like, we if we do well in that stretch, if we're 3-1 and one coming out of that stretch, I'm going to feel really good about this team because I think they, they've got the potential to get better as the year goes on, as they get more comfortable in their schemes. And those are all winnable games. Those are, There's no... That is not a murderer's row to go on the road against. I think you mentioned last year we started on the road against the Packers with a healthy Aaron Rodgers and Mike Daniels. Uh, That wasn't great. That wasn't ideal (laughs) way to start the year. Starting at Denver, a team that really I'm not convinced they've got the answers on either side of the ball. Uh, I think that's a nice way to start the year. I think you guys are a question mark. I think it's a real question as to what Trubisky is. Definitely the potential to be a really great team this year. I love the pieces you added at tight end and receiver. Right. Love them. But also, Trubisky's got to do it. And mm-hmm. Nagy's got to put it all together. And, like, could happen. Could also be the sort of thing that clicks after the bye for you guys. And we get lucky that we saw you early in the year. Um, and Arizona... You know that's the that's the part of the year where Sam Bradford gets hurt. So who knows what's going to happen there? <laughs> so so for me, I'm like and and, and home against the Cowboys. Uh, that's like a, again, it's a winnable game for us. So I even though we start off with a plethora of road games, I'm like there's a bunch of question marks. Anything could happen. But I like that we start with some games where I'm not petrified. Even if even if I'm like we could go zero and four over that stretch. I'm not petrified that that's what's going to happen. Sure, sure. And then you because uh, week five is no good, right? You you got the Rams at home, hoping to avenge a forty-two to seven home loss to the Rams last year. What happened in that game, by Everything. the way? Because I mean, the loss Everything. wasn't with the way that the Rams were playing at the time. It wasn't the biggest surprise that the Rams would win, but for them to win like that, that was deeply shocking. Bunch of early turnovers. We just felt like we, nothing was working. Um, and everything was working for them. The Rams, when they can play from ahead, when 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 every play is available to McVay, and he can you know do all the reads for Jared Goff at the line and just sort of do whatever he wants, they're so good on offense. We were down. I, I feel like that was a game Bobby Wagner tried to play through a hamstring injury, mm. and it didn't work. It just didn't work. Uh, Bobby Wagner was the most important player on the Seahawks last year. And in every other game in the season combined, he missed one tackle. I believe in that game he missed five or six. <laughs> he was just playing hurt. Right. And 
you put together that with a couple early turnovers from the Seahawks, McVay having every play in the play. It just and it's amazing that it never happened sooner. It was the first time that a Pete Carroll team had been genuinely blown out since he came to the Seahawks. That it happened at home against a division rival is tough, but it's genuinely shocking that it hadn't happened sooner. Right. So, you know, it all just went wrong. And hopefully it doesn't this year, but oh boy, that's I mean, even if we're four and oh, I won't be confident that we don't get blown out in that game. Wow. Then you go at uh, Oakland before a week seven bye. And what's your philosophy on bye weeks? Do you like that kind of middle, you know, do you like the yeah. later ones? You know, where are you at on, on that kind of thing? Six is fine. Six is fine. I like them late. I like them late personally, but uh, six is fine. I don't like a four. Four feels too early. But uh, anything other than those first two, I'm like, okay, that's fine. Uh, I also like the Tom Cable revenge game. Uh, against Oakland, we get we get to see John Gruden's anti-data ball early. I like to see that. Uh, there's also a weird rivalry between Seahawks and Raiders Twitter because everybody on Seahawks Twitter likes to talk about how bad Carr is, which is like weird. But okay, uh, so that'll be a fun. I think that's going to be a fun and chippy game. That could be that game could be like sneaky fun for like real down and dirty Raiders and Seahawks fans. It's also an old school rivalry from when the Seahawks were still in the AFC. Yeah, yeah, old AFC West rivalry. Now and then, you know, after the week seven bye, you know, you have your, your you have ten games left. Four of them are on national TV. You got Thursday night against Green Bay at home, oh. um, Sunday night at home for the 49ers, followed up by Monday night against the Vikings. Actually, all these games, all these primetime games are at home, actually. Yeah. Thursday night for Green Bay, Sunday night for San Francisco, Monday night, Minnesota, and then Sunday night for Kansas City week. 16 so they they end up with the five the max number that you can have uh in a season but they backloaded those uh national tv games uh starting in week 11 you have what five four of them in six weeks on national tv yeah i is that kansas city one a monday or sunday it's sunday night yeah that's gonna get flexed (laughs) you know (laughs) like that's my instinct on that one is like I like Mahomes uh, and I like the Seahawks, but I have a feeling that's going to be a battle of like that could very well be a battle of one one of those teams could well have five or six wins at that point in the year. Uh, I'm just going to say that. So you know, look, I'm a I love the Seahawks. I hope it ain't us. One of those teams could well not be worthy of primetime at that point in the year. That said, the fact that we always are playing the Packers in primetime, I know you're exhausted by playing the Packers twice a year. I'm not excited about getting them again in primetime, especially on a weird Thursday nighter. It's always weird. I don't know about that. Oh, we play Oakland in London. It's our first London game. So Is that right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Two West Coast teams having to go to London. Well, that that's sucks. Yeah, we're playing at the new Tottenham Stadium, which, whatever. Okay. I don't know. Um, and then... I don't like playing Richard Sherman in prime time. That doesn't seem like it's going to end well. I feel like I'm going to have to watch a lot of highlights of him doing great against the 49ers and then him reacting to us losing the Super Bowl. I mean, Al Michaels is – or who, I forget if that's Sunday or Monday. I think it's Sunday. I think it's NBC. Yeah, it is Sunday. Yeah, they're – oh, God. Collinsworth is salivating at the idea of getting to show all those highlights. I'm not a fan of that at all. So – um I guess like that feels like the murderer's row part of the season. Potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting the Packers Vikings, potentially a really good Niners team. If Garoppolo really is what he looked like twice in uh, three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Week 13, week 13, week 15 for the, for the, for the home and away for the 49ers. 
if we're if we are playing up to, if if we have a good injury luck next year if the offensive line gels those are going to be the games that decide i think probably like which of those nfc west teams gets into the wild card could be could those could decide the division if the rams aren't what i think they are i still don't love jared goff but i love every other unit they've got so i don't know uh yeah i think it's uh, Again, there are just so many questions with the Seahawks offense as to what it's going to look like. Again, I look that far in the future, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. A lot of possibilities. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I've got the same thing. I mean, I I just talked to the, like I said, I just talked to the 49ers guy, yeah. and um, we don't play the 49ers until week 16. So I mean, we're talking six full months between talking to him now and when I talked to him before that that game every single question that we have right now should and will be answered at that yep. point when we yep. see the 49ers again in christmas weekend uh yep. and everything so i mean that's uh it's there's a lot a lot that's going to happen between uh now and then and there's a lot that's going to happen between now and your you know the first game on thursday night against green bay which kicks off that four out of six on national tv uh, run. I mean, it's week 11, so we'll have a pretty good idea of how the season's going to go down by that point. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if if you tell me that San Francisco-Chicago Christmas game, if that's a battle of three-win teams or a battle of 11-win teams, I wouldn't be shocked either way. You know, you know? I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, it's just the potential for both of those teams to have 10-11 wins going into it is there. You know, yep. with the pieces that they've got and the, the guys they've got on, in charge, you know, running the show, uh, and everything, a few lucky bounces, it could be a playoff. Um, you know, could, playoffs could be at stake at that point, especially week sixteen. I mean, that's that's elimination time. That practically is the playoffs at that point uh, yeah. in the season. It could be a huge game, or it could be you know fan bases arguing about wanting their team to lose so we can get a better draft choice kind of thing. It's Absolutely. which I am wholeheartedly against, by the way, yeah. but. That's that was one part that was very frustrating last year was actually hearing some of my listeners say that they wanted us to lose to Cleveland so we could get a higher draft choice uh, in the in the in the draft uh, that's the week 16 that we played them. So, yeah, um, there's there's late in the season, like being OK with losing to a great team mm-hmm. when you're you know, when you're not a great team, there's never a good time to lose to Cleveland. No. Never, no, no. never acceptable. No, especially if you got to do it on Christmas Eve. It's like, come on, guys, oh. you don't want the Bears to lose a, at home against the Browns on Christmas Eve. You don't want that, <laughs> uh, you know. So what if it nicks from eight to six? Big deal, you know. Come on, let's uh, let's just let's uh, you know have some uh, perspective here. So, uh, but anyway, you know, uh, Spike, I really appreciate you coming on, man. It was uh, good stuff, and uh, we look forward to having you on uh, prior to week two. Uh, when yeah. we play the the Bears and the Seahawks, Monday Night Football will be the Bears' home opener. So the the beginning of the Matt Nagy era in Soldier Field because we're week one, we're at Green Bay on Sunday Night Football. So uh, it's uh, it's going to be a, a fun game and uh, see what kind of questions we can answer between now and then. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to honestly two teams where I honestly can't wait to see what their offenses look like in preseason. Which is a crazy thing to say, yeah. but I think it's going to be really interesting from week 1 of preseason. Yeah, it's going to be uh it's going to be a journey for sure to find out what's going on, I mean, especially with what we just talked about as far as what the the potential of what the NFC itself could be 
this year. It could be really interesting where, you know, there's always that turnover of playoff teams where there's three or four new ones and something like, you know, the, things could bounce a certain way where we have six brand new teams out of the NFC this year if, if, uh, if you know, if, if things go a certain way uh, in, in 2018. You could just have people that didn't make the playoffs, boom, here they are because they made this move, that move, and that move, and it just worked out a certain way. I totally agree. So where can we find you uh, online? Where can we listen to the uh, show? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm co-hosting the Locked On Seahawks podcast with Grant Goldberg on the Locked On Sports Network. I also write about the Seahawks and other random sports things with a humorous voice for The Stranger, Seattle's uh, weekly newspaper edited by Dan Savage. Uh, Someone's got to do sports for them. Uh, (laughs) And yeah, I think that's where I'm going to be doing Seahawks coverage this year. So if you really want that deep dive Seahawks coverage, come find me. And uh, where can we find you on Twitter? Oh, at Spike Friedman. Uh, I post less than I used to, but hey, get on there. You can all retweet my podcast. You'll have a great time. Follow there we me. go. Why not? Awesome. Spike Friedman from the Locked On Seahawks podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, man. We'll talk to you real soon. Thanks for having me. Had a great time talking to Spike from the Locked On Seahawks podcast. Looking forward to talking to him prior to week two. Um, wondering how much how much can we have answered by then as far as, you know, what the... I mean, it, and it's always such a crapshoot as to what, what we'll know by week two. I mean, we'll be coming off that big game against Green Bay on Sunday night football. It'll be our first home game of the Matt Nagy era, uh, so on and so forth. Having gone through a preseason, we had an extra preseason game thanks to the Hall of Fame game and, 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 and what have you. How will the Seahawks have looked in that time and, and everything else? So it'll still be very early on. Uh, some perceptions still being put together uh, at that point. I mean, think about a year ago, um, first five weeks of the season, the, the Kansas City Chiefs were head and tails, you know, uh, head and shoulders, I should say, uh, above anybody else in the league, including stomping the Patriots into the ground week one uh, as they celebrated raising their new banner. You know, it, it's, uh, but then again, after that, it was what, four and, or five and, five and seven the rest of the way, or five and six uh, the rest of the way for the, for the Chiefs, including like losing five out of six at that point uh, as well. So, I mean, it's happened the last few years where a team starts out 5-0 and and then kind of peters out to either barely make the playoffs or not make the playoffs at all. The Falcons did it a couple of years ago, uh, and, 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 what, and I think the Vikings did it the year before that or something like that. It was, uh, you know, they've always been the team that come hot out the gate but that don't really have the gas to, you know, to ride it all the way to the end. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see where these teams are and what the perception is, A, after week one, after the preseason, um, and, uh, you know, where they think things will be headed uh, after that. So, you know, th- this team will barely have its feet underneath itself. And by them, by this team, I mean the Bears, as far as, you know, what the, what the new offense looks like and uh, who's going to be doing what and uh, what kind of role everyone's going to play in it and, and everything else in between. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see what the, where the discussion takes us when we have Spike back on before the Week 2 Monday Nighter uh, against the Seahawks. But that will do it uh, for part three of our NFC West preview. Uh, when we come back here in a few days, probably on Friday is when I'll go ahead and release the part four, the finale of the NFC West. It will be the uh, it will be Brad Mater, Brad Mater, the traitor, the Chicago native, 
repping the L.A. Rams. We'll be talking about him uh, and what the hell he's doing. Uh, talk about the 2017 Rams and uh, you know what kind of parallels we can draw between them and uh, the 2018 Bears and how we're hoping that we can mirror the success that they had a year ago and um, you know where they think the Rams are going to be because on paper like we've talked about a few times with everybody else in the NFC West on paper they are the best team in the uh, in the division and um, when I was uh, I was out earlier today and I saw some of the NFL mags uh, are out and uh, there was one I don't remember which one it was that actually picked the Rams to win the Super Bowl I mean that's (laughs) how about that it was the Rams over the Steelers were the prediction. And, um, you know, there was the, 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 the one out of the four magazines that I saw that was picking that uh, to be their Super Bowl. So, uh, interesting. So we have a lot to talk about with Brad Mater, the trader, from the Locked on Rams uh, podcast when we come back on Friday. So until then, my name is Larry D, and this has been the Chicago Bears Review. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash match. Just go to indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate, how a broom almost killed curling. 
It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.